This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Your body is unique. So why would you settle for a weight loss plan that's one size fits all? Noom is the weight management program that takes into account your biology to build a custom plan just for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. How can half a century of studying ants help us save the planet? I'm Benji Jones, an environmental reporter at Vox. And today, I'm your host for Vox Conversations. Here at Vox, I write about the biodiversity crisis, the accelerating loss of plants and animals and the ecosystems they live in. Grim stuff, I know. But that's actually why I'm so excited for our guest today. He's the very person who popularized the term biodiversity in the first place. Not to mention, he transformed the field of biology. I'm talking about E.O. Wilson, or Ed Wilson, who's considered one of the greatest naturalists of all time. He's even been called a modern-day Darwin. For Dr. Wilson, it all started with ants, his first area of study. There were a few forces that drove him to these small, widespread insects, including a fishing accident that left him blind in one eye. It was easier for him to stare through a microscope than observe, say, birds in the sky. But of course, E.O. Wilson didn't stop at ants. In fact, it was his writing on human nature that thrust him into the spotlight, for better or worse. And we'll get into that in our conversation. I'm eager to talk with Dr. Wilson for so many reasons. For one, I read his work 10 years ago as a college student studying ecology. Now as someone who writes and thinks about conservation as a journalist, I want to hear his perspective on how the movement to save nature has changed over the course of his long career, and how he thinks it needs to change in the years to come. What can we learn from his studies on animal behavior, and on the biological roots of human behavior? And importantly, and something else we'll get into, how do we avoid scary unintended consequences of biology-based approaches? Today, Ed is a professor emeritus at Harvard and chairman of the E.O. Wilson Biodiversity Foundation. He's received more than 150 awards, including two Pulitzer Prizes for nonfiction and the National Medal of Science. He's written more than 30 books and published almost 500 scientific papers. Oh, and I looked him up on Google Scholar, and his work has almost 250,000 citations. He's a big deal. Professor Wilson, we're so excited to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm a big fan, and I kind of grew up with some of your writing and was a student of ecology myself and remember learning about some of your 
your work and theories as a student. But I, I wanted to start out with a question that I, I've been thinking a lot about and, and something that's a little bit more fun. So you've devoted much of your life, of course, to the study of ants. And, and I've got to know, do you have a favorite type of ant, a favorite ant species? And, and if so, why? Good question. I would say that uh, my favorite is uh, the most primitive ant in the world, the one that's most likely an ancestral wasp that uh, is known only from Australia. And I've made a couple of trips to Australia trying to find it in the wild so I could see what a proto-ant is like. And I never succeeded. I never could find it, although specimens <laughs> were turning up. And finally, one of my students, my graduate students, was out with a team in south-central Australia, and they were searching for this primitive ant, which we thought one studied might reveal information, secrets, of the origin of ants in general. Hmm. But they didn't have a lot of hope for discovering it. Nonetheless, they were camped in a locality in South Australia, and my uh, student, former student, walked out into the night with a light to see if he might turn it up at night, and he did. He found a colony, and he rushed into the camp shouting, I got the bloody bastard. I got the bloody bastard. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. What was this ant called? It's uh, got the technical name of Mauricia, and mm. uh, it is very close to, uh, as a wasp, uh, very close to the primitive ants that you find uh, in, abundantly in Australia. Did it reveal secrets as you had hoped? Uh, yeah, because uh, then colonies were discovered and uh, set up in the laboratory. Behavior, social behavior, uh, was followed closely. And we got a pretty clear picture of what happened when one line of wasp in Australia, most likely, uh, evolved into the most primitive ants. And a big step in social evolution was thereby pieced together by the bloody bastard that I uh, found <laughs> out on that evening in South Australia. Yeah, yeah. So... One of my favorite parts of reading your books and hearing your stories is just that you you went on some of these incredible expeditions when you were at Harvard as a, as a fellow and were, I mean, in some cases, the first Western scientist, as I understand it, to really get to explore some of these places like New Caledonia and Papua New Guinea and Australia. And these were areas that were largely unknown to Western science at the time. And I'm just so curious, like, what was it like back then to explore these areas? Like, what, what was the environment like? What was it like to be the first to see some of these habitats, the first Western scientist, that is? Exciting. It's why I went halfway around the world. <laughs> I think probably the most uh, important adventure that I did have was to be, I believe, the first non-native, uh, that is, the first scientist, to climb the center of the Sarawagad Mountains uh, on the Horn, that is the peninsula of New Guinea. And with the help of uh, local natives, I went up to the 13,000-foot crest of the Sarawagad Mountains hmm. and um, could look down 13,000 feet 
knowing that I probably was the first person, not a native, to uh, climb up and see what it was like along that uh, mountain range. There were lots of adventures like that. There are lots of adventures waiting for young people everywhere willing to combine a little bit of science uh, with old-fashioned exploration. A lot of the world remained to be discovered and explained. Yeah. And can you just describe, like, what was it like climbing that mountain, being the the first non-native, as you put it, to be up there, seeing some of, of these habitats that haven't been cataloged? I mean, what what was the feeling like? Was it just like everything was new, everything was exciting? Like, I'd love to just hear kind of the emotions, if you remember them. You put it well. Everything was new. Hmm. Most of the uh, animals that I saw, uh, including, because I, I work on ants mostly, kinds of ants that uh, had never been found before. At Harvard, you uh, heard much about the Society of Fellows. Uh, it's a f- wide-open three- to five-year fellowship that a certain number of uh, graduate students mostly are able to uh, obtain. And it sends you anywhere you want. The, the, the organization sends you any place in the world and lets you stay for long periods of time during a five-year tenure that a junior fellowship. Uh, and it was a great experience. I mean, it sounds incredible. And and I've got to ask, as, as someone who, who loves to see wildlife and go on explorations myself, like, was there a particular wildlife encounter that stands out to you from all of your travels, like one moment that was really remarkable for you? Uh, I believe probably the most important was when I visited a little set of islands called New Caledonia and set out to be the first entomologist, you know, a person who specializes on insects, to arrive on uh, that set of islands uh, off the coast of Australia and just celebrate a tremendous variety of new species and unexpected developments in the evolution seen uh, on those little islands. Yeah, yeah, right. So one thing that's so incredible about your books, and, and obviously you've, you've written many of them, is that I think they really inspired people to go out and explore the world themselves. But I also think about the fact that today the world is very different, and I can't imagine that there are many places in the world that haven't been touched by humans. I mean, people often talk about how we've kind of conquered every corner of the Earth, at least on land. It seems like what you were able to do and what you did is almost impossible to do now in terms of going to a place that Western science hasn't been to before. It's certainly more difficult to uh, what we, our predecessors were able to do 50 or 100 years ago, but there's still a lot of unclaimed territory, so to speak, in uh, the discovery and the study of the fauna and floras of different parts of the world. I've had uh, the advantage of visiting uh, and almost living for long periods of time in parts of northern South America and New Guinea. In other words, there still was a lot of unexplored, unstudied terrain, fauna, and flora. When I went out from Harvard on my uh, expeditions, 
and, and you would you're saying that basically if you go out into the world today there is still plenty to discover there is still a need for discovery and for explanation and and I've heard you say kind of we need a taxonomic revolution can you just say more about about what you mean by that because it's I think it's surprising to people that there are so many species for example that are still unknown to science I think that the number of species on earth we do not know and uh, there may be more undiscovered and unstudied species in the world, especially remote areas in the tropics, uh, that await even the most elementary studies in the field, mostly. And the results are going to be continuing to unfold across several generations of scientists and students of science ahead. And um, Mm. universities uh, would be wise that have museums, that have the beginnings of great art collections, and that have the boldness and the wherewithal to undertake special studies to uncover the most important generalizations about evolution and the uh, fauna and flora of the world. Hmm. It will be richly rewarded. And uh, this may be an obvious question, but why is there still in your mind, a strong need for basic science studies on organisms and for cataloging more species for discovery? Because it seems like there's so much pressure to solve the problem of habitat loss and other forces that are driving down biodiversity. So should we focus instead on these forces at play that are causing the extinction crisis instead of trying to just understand what species are out there? Because it almost seems like we're just sort of cataloging what's about to go extinct. We should be doing both. Very rough estimates have been made that uh, there exists on the planet upwards of 10 million species. Mm. And we know only a, a, actually a small fraction of uh, the 10 million. In most cases, we just have a few specimens in museums or we've done what I did a little bit, which is to go where they are where the richest part of the world fauna and the flora are. And um, it would be enormously productive and uh, useful if we made more of an effort to identify all of the species on Earth, Mm. to find out where they are, what their status is. And um, that's just something that I have been arguing for and I'm going to uh, intensify my uh, reasoning and my experience to um, play a part of that. I've sent uh, expeditions on my own to interesting parts of the world, not always rewarded. Hmm. Uh, For example, I uh, looked at the West Indies, and then I noticed that there's a big island, the Falklands, uh, just at the lower tip of the uh, of the West Indies, and I said to myself, no one has ever gone to this large island to just study the ants. What sort of interesting species are found there? And uh, I lined up a team of students and postdoctoral fellows to go to the Falkland Islands and see what kind of ants are on those islands. I thought new species and all sorts of interesting things would emerge by exploring uh, this set of large islands 
at the uh, southernmost West Indies. So several went, and they spent a long time looking back and forth and back and forth, and came back and said there are no ants on um, Falkland Island. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I said, well, you can't, you can't win them all. Anyway, it's always uh, it's uh, something I want to emphasize to students everywhere, even starting a career of exploration and, and science, and that is that the opportunities are endless. They represent uh, the equivalent of uh, the first explorations made by people when they came out of Europe and began to explore the rest of the world. Mm. And that's what we have before us. And I think that it makes sense to uh, have form and follow some great endeavor connected with conservation, with understanding the living part of the world. And that would be to proceed with the exploration of all of and identification and the learning of the biology of every species of organism, plant, animal, microorganism in the world is something that I think would be enormously productive if it became a major endeavor of science as a whole. I mean, I, I just love this idea and, and how you're saying it, that there seems to be so much wonder still left in the world. Like you can go out today just like you could go out whatever number of years ago and still find something new, find something that will contribute to science in, in a productive way and, and have a lot of thrill for yourself as a scientist. Yeah, even if um, you uh, find it necessary to travel a little farther than would have been the case a few years ago, and recognizing that uh, the most important discoveries are going to be made in uh, examining the smallest of the animals and plants, that's where original discoveries can be most rapidly made. Also, we just need to know what is on this planet. And from that information, we, we need to have a more complete and productive knowledge of the effective care of the life that we've inherited on this planet. So along those lines, something that I'm sure you've thought a lot about, but why does a species matter if we don't even know about it? Like, if species are going to be going extinct that we haven't even discovered, why do they matter? And I'm sorry if that's a very coarse question. Well, let's put it this way. To explore life that remains to be discovered and named on planet Earth remains one of the potentially most productive, interesting, and useful endeavors of science. And I think we won't see the magnitude of our ignorance and the uh, magnitude of our excitement of obtaining useful knowledge of the environment, the living environment especially as a whole. And we won't know what we have on this planet except to a limited degree until we uh, set out to explore all of it. And that includes large numbers of small, inconspicuous species of organisms, plants and animals and, and microorganisms 
that we need to know a lot more about in order to understand the life on this planet that supports our own. And so essentially, like, we need to know what we have to lose, right? Yes, uh, we need to not to carelessly let any species slip away from us. And if we want to know what is on this planet and why it is a live planet, Mm. uh, what contributes to that life and what it all means ultimately for human existence, we should try to save it all. And we should set out to learn about it all. Uh, I think this is a noble endeavor awaiting humanity is to find out with exactitude and in detail what is on the planet with us, what the history of it was, how it got here, what it's doing now, what we are doing to it, what it means to us. In other words, we really ought to recognize that we share this planet with a remarkable assembly of organisms of all kind, and we don't want the Earth to remain as though it were some distant exoplanet or solar planet that we need to get around to studying. And, and if you were going to give advice to a student of biology today to explore a type of life, a type of organism, where would you recommend starting? I mean, is there a particular kind of animal or plant that we just don't know very much about, or like a genus or a, a family of organisms that remain unknown? Uh, there are a lot of them. If you wish, you can take a, a map of the world and throw a dart. And where the dart hits, you will find animals and plants and a mystery of great magnitude that await your examination and scientific studies in order to add to a still largely uh, unexplored planet, planet Earth. Studying ants has led E.O. Wilson all over the world to observe and document the behavior of these tiny social animals. But what has this endeavor taught him about us, human beings? That's what I'll ask after a quick break. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. 
Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Burrow.com slash box. So you've written a lot, of course, about the biological basis of human behavior as well. And I just want to know, like, what has studying ants and, and ecology taught you about the behavior of humans like obviously social insects and there's so many cool facts about ants that I, I love and I love observing colonies and sometimes feel like when I'm living in New York and going in the subway I feel kind of like an ant myself but what is it about social insects that led you to understanding human behavior I mean what can we learn about human behavior from studying something like an ant well for one thing ants are radically different well, of course, they are radically different in a number of things from human societies. But what they uh, have representing in the living world that stands out is chemical communication. Ants communicate with one another by what we call pheromones, and that's the release of chemical substances from various parts of the body specialized each in turn to produce signals, ant to ant, of situations like danger, food close by, soft earth for the building of a new nest. All this information is being processed by members of colonies of ants and communicated among the members of each colony by substances called pheromones. And I recognized early in my studies of ants that there was a great opportunity for making original discoveries by studying communication that uh, is made possible in ant societies by pheromones. So the university, the Department of Biology, offered for me when I first arrived and then continuously to the present time opportunities for making original discoveries. That's what the name of the game in the academic world is the opening of new portfolios of phenomena in biology and other areas of uh, the natural sciences. And that is what uh, we do. Find the, the unknown, I mean, identify it, and then make the discoveries to open it up. And my interest early in chemical communication among the ants led to broader studies of the origin of social behavior generally. And this brings us to humanity, which of course is a linguistic hearing specialist, sound specialist. And there are things that have occurred in the origins of human society that can be illuminated more effectively by studying how societies are put together in the vast array of uh, organisms, 
from deer to starlings on to ants to bees and so on. Each species having created societies in different ways using different senses from smell to sound to sight. And early on in my career at Harvard, I saw the option of doing a comparative study across many species using different sensory modalities from odor of the pheromones to the dances of social groups and so on. I saw the opportunity of building a discipline out of this. Hmm. And so it was that I uh, proposed the uh, creation of a discipline which I called sociobiology. And I couldn't stay away from humans, <laughs> so I decided to include the peculiarities of human social behavior and how it could be illuminated, the evolution of human social behavior, illuminated better by making a comparison with societies of all kind. And we got uh, some attention. And it's, uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> but the idea of comparing human social behavior to the social behavior of, for heaven's sake, ants, or more close, uh, the uh, a group I had studied, the uh, rhesus monkeys in the field, was just too good an opportunity to make original discoveries and form insights into uh, an area which had only received a relatively small portion of studies of animal yeah. behavior. So I, I understand that you got a lot of flack from some people related to some of the work that you did trying to understand the biological basis or evolutionary basis of certain human behaviors. Looking back on that now, I mean, would you have done anything differently? Are you still kind of very proud of the work that you did for sociobiology? How do you look back on that time in your life when you did receive some maybe negative attention for some of that work? As the uh, unfavorable attention started to fade away, I was happy that I had taken the course of study and action that I did. Hmm. There are not many areas of science that are sensitive to the potential conflict uh, with moral reasoning, a, a difficulty that goes all the way back before Darwin and the idea of evolution at all which caused a outpouring from time to time due to the seeming animalization of humanity and the human condition. And uh, I can understand why that alarm was caused by the appearance of a discipline, a sociobiology, which included human behavior as just one more possibility in the evolution of, so of social behavior. But it's held its ground, and I think sociobiology is now well accepted. And there's still obviously like a lot we don't know in terms of the biological roots of certain behavior. We talk a lot about culture, religion, things that could have some kind of evolutionary benefit, as you've written about. But I'm just wondering, do you think that it is important that we fully understand all the biological roots of behavior that we fill in the remaining gaps? Like, is that a really important area of study in your opinion? I think it's extremely important. Human behavior has uh, whole generations of 
poets, writers, and scientists have come to realize is deeply rooted in instinct. And there's a history to that instinct uh, that uh, occurred as uh, human, proto-humans, primitive, the most simple forms of humans, mostly in the African continent, evolved gradually into uh, the full species of Homo sapiens. And that is history. It's prehistory, but it's history that is enormously important because human instinctive behavior and all of its consequences and all of its possible manifestation, all of this is enormously important uh, for our understanding of our own species, our self-understanding. That's simple. So I, I'm, I'm pleased to report that after the uh, initial horrified response to the idea of sociobiology, after that had died down, it's now a routine subject. Yeah. So I guess for me, when I think about this, part of me is a little bit scared of knowing everything, like to know the biological basis of everything. I feel like it could be a slippery slope. I mean, I can imagine some scary situations if we know everything. So for example, like I'm gay and if you could figure out the biological basis of like something like homosexuality, I can imagine there being concerns related to that because we can kind of know immediately if we wanted to. So is there any concerns that you have about knowing too much? No. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we have here a contest between the protection of what recent, mostly recent, social evolution has led us to believe is ideas and discussion that need to be carefully phrased and, and argued to protect those who may be most sensitive to being criticized unreasonably by others. That's one instinct that has prevailed, and I've seen it affect studies of human behavior a great deal. But on the other hand, it's only by a completely open and honest reconstruction to the best of our ability where we fit as a species that have evolved in, in the midst of a living world which the peculiar properties have deeply influenced what we became. This is just what we should be studying openly and with honest and a decent regard in uh, the institutions of higher learning. Right. So I want to talk now about some of the more recent work that you've done related to conservation. And my first question is, is linked to human behavior. So when we think about what we need to do to make the world healthier, to improve the environment, you often hear kind of conservation groups and other organizations talking about the need to change behavior, to change human behavior, we need to drive less and so on. And so given your knowledge of how some of human behavior is rooted in biology, what does that tell us about our ability to change, about our ability to treat the world better? Are we capable of doing that? Or is it kind of in our instinct to be, I don't know, to not treat the world well? Like, how do you think about this through a behavior lens? 
I think what we have is the great human dilemma. We have flourished as a species, and we have come to understand who we are, where we came from as a species. We have almost weekly new knowledge of how our proliferation as a species and our self-regard and self-understanding profoundly affect the way we treat each other and the kind of societies that we endeavor to create. All this is evolving all the time, and we cannot keep it in a productive, positive form if we don't understand the foundation of our own animal behavior and its origins and the reasons why we are the way we are. It's just elementary, as far as I can see, to fully understanding what we are, where we came from, why the way we behave and interact with the rest of the living world. And this should be just part of human mental activity is uh, the endeavor to understand ourselves and our origin. And what are some examples of how understanding ourselves better and our origin better could lead to a, a world that we are more likely to conserve? Well, for one thing, uh, energy, along with all the accoutrements that have given us to uh, create and consume and use vast amounts of energy, from keeping warm in the winter to conducting punitive military action on other countries. And it's just that what we would regard as the fruits of our innate mental ability to explore the world and make the most of what we find in it and how we can uh, utilize it. That's the positive part. And of course, the negative is that we overdo everything. Yeah, one thing that I think about a lot is just where conservation is in this moment and where it needs to go. And it's just such a privilege to talk with you because you've spent so much of your long career thinking about biodiversity, thinking about biology, and now thinking about conservation. Something that seems troubling is that we've spent many decades on trying to make conservation mainstream, trying to conserve our environment, but it seems like given where things stand today, it just hasn't worked. And I'm I'm wondering if you might just comment on why it hasn't worked. Like, why are we in this position? Like, what's one thing that stands out as being a problem that we have just not been able to address and why for conservation? I like to uh, try to sum it up with an assessment of my own experience uh, being on the board of several leading conservation organizations and being a loving observer of all the various efforts that we've evolved in order to save as much of the rest of life as possible. And those of us on the boards of conservation organizations have had many successes. A rainforest here, the protection of a savanna, our tropical grassland there, attention paid boreal coniferous forest over here, and so on. And we have the conservation organizations at their best have had many successes locally. And all of it is very valuable. Hmm. 
But on the other hand, the sum of it all is still inadequate. That is to say, we don't have a generally uh, recognized, universally accepted moonshot effort to combine all the activities directed toward conservation into a unified, fundamentally uh, accepted ethic of conservation to apply. And the way I like to put it is that we have many victories in a losing war. That is to say, uh, we've accomplished a lot. I know I've been on the boards that can be proud of individual projects that succeeded. I've witnessed dramatically successful that are considered uh, individually the most important. But on the other hand, we still see as a whole in both the sea and on the land more and more of the natural environments that contain and protect the rest of life on the planet, seeing that slip away. One of the most inspiring features of E.O. Wilson's work is his belief in the wide boundaries of what's possible to achieve, to discover, or to repair. We're going to take one last short break, but when we come back, I'll ask Dr. Wilson about another moonshot effort inspired by his work, a bold project known as Half Earth. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Most weight loss programs focus on restriction and inflexible routine, which is why most diets fail. But Noom isn't a diet. It's a weight management program that uses psychology and biology to help you develop healthy, sustainable habits. Noom believes that weight loss starts with the brain, and their daily lessons are tailored to help users understand the science behind food cravings and eating choices. Whether you want to lose weight, increase physical activity, meet a health goal, or simply change the way you think about food, Noom can help you build healthy habits while still enjoying your favorite foods. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. 
Would it be fair to say that this kind of universal ethic that you're talking about is in line with the Half Earth Project, this project inspired by your work to conserve half of the planet, both land and sea? In uh, the 1960s, a young professor at Princeton, Robert MacArthur was his name, and I was a young professor at Harvard, put our minds together, and we said, let's create a theory together of something we're both familiar with because of work that we've done on biodiversity and, you know, the numbers of species, what determines the number of species in a particular part of the world and so on. And we uh, created together what came to be known as, well, we named it, is uh, the uh, theory of island biogeography. It began when I was, I put together data for ants from all through the Pacific region, island by island. How many ants are on each island? What are they doing? And I saw that there were rules about the uh, area of the island uh, and the number of species to be found. In this case of ants, but it turns out of birds and just about any group of organisms that you please to study with reference to the phenomenon of the increase or decrease of the area of particular islands and the uh, relationship between the two, the number of species on uh, islands and the area of the islands uh, was such a regular relationship that uh, we devised between the two of us a set of uh, rules and, and laws of area and diversity. And so it came to pass, uh, MacArthur passed away a few years ago, so he couldn't be part of more of uh, making use of this first effort that we had made, the theory of island biogeography, we called it. And I saw that uh, the curve of the numbers of species on islands and the area of the different islands that you may study in a particular group of islands is hyperbolic. I mean, it means that only a, a relatively small increase in the area of going from one island to the next resulted in a substantially faster addition in the number of species that exist on the island. And so it occurred to me that as the 2016 Conference of Conservation Organizations approaching, that something should be made of the setting aside of area because you can do a lot with a small amount of area. For example, if uh, you can somehow set aside 15% more area in building a, a reserve, you can increase the number of species that can live there stably by 85%. Wow. This suggested to me just this one phenomenon that we ought to translate that into something, that fortunate relation between area and numbers of species that can be saved should be translated into a policy. And I suggested that in a book entitled Half Earth. Save half or make the earth, if you can somehow make half the earth uh, reserve, you could save the vast majority of species on it. 
And so when we had a, a national organization meeting in 2016, I uh, went to this meeting expecting to be pilloried for suggesting, you know, such a, a wild, sweeping perception. And it was the contrary. It was, it was praised widely as an idea to pursue. And so this is the way it is now. We're beginning to more and more lay plans that make the most from uh, saving areas as reserves. They count far more than we recognized at the beginning. It's so cool to see such a clear application of your work. I mean, a lot of people are obviously talking about Half Earth and similar initiatives. I did want to ask, there's been a lot of criticism of approaches that are all about increasing the area of protected areas because in the past, that has often led to the ousting of, of indigenous people or local communities from their land. So my question to you is, how do we increase the area of protected land or protected sea without harming the rights of, of indigenous people or local community? Can we do those things together? Yes. Uh, let me just use one word. Reserve. Biodiversity reserve. And that is used as of as a tourist attraction, as a recipient of funding put aside particularly to uh, save wildlife. And generally, we have enough examples now from around the world to show that reserves created or enlarged in a thoughtful manner with due consideration given to people living there who own the property and all have the uh, methods and, and philosophies of conservation of their own, uh, that we can accomplish both. So we can have people living in the reserves if they're part of the kind of sustainable management of them. Yeah, and I've been involved in a couple of them in Africa to show that this works. So I wanted to hear some advice from you, and I'm sure lots of people will, will want this as well. What advice do you have for scientists or biologists that are just starting their career today, young kids who who want to be biologists in the future, or maybe college freshmen who are trying to figure out their career? What would you tell them, given the moment that we're in right now? Well, I guess I've been saying the same thing for quite a while, and that is that biology, if you have even a glimmering, just a glimmering of interest in entering the fields, the many fields of biology offer through the environment a career that is at this point in our history going to be potentially enormously useful. We know that reserves are very fragile and that we need to have a science and a technology of reserve creation. And that as part of this, we need to know what is in the reserves down to the smallest invertebrate, animal and alga or root fungus down to the last species that you find to know what we're doing when we have a reserve set aside and they were lending it dignity and studying it and making it an important part of local and, and global culture. This should be uh, the kind of career 
that I would hope that every student with any interest in biology at all carefully consider. Whatever you undertake in technology, you will find applications in conservation. And so uh, we have started a whole culture bringing a whole an array of, of new technologies to bear to save the best reserves in the world and the, the species of plants and animals that you find in them. Hmm. It's a career choice that should be considered. And I'd like to see it intensified and a lot more of it defended and made available with encouragement and support to form a career for young people. And what advice do you have for people who are not scientists and are just trying to live in a way that doesn't harm the planet? Like, what do you tell people about their own responsibility? Don't cut down a um, boreal forest or the Amazon and have a general sense of responsibility for the remaining natural areas of the world. That doesn't require a PhD in biodiversity. It requires instead a sense of personal responsibility and merit to um, save parts of the world that are very valuable for our history, for our welfare, and unfortunately are very vulnerable to careless destruction. But what does that actually look like for someone in terms of their day-to-day? Because like, if you live in New York City, where I am, or in Massachusetts, where you are, like, what is the behavior that we should be living by? Is there a change that's needed in our personal ethic? Uh, I found that in different parts of our country, and then uh, um, foreign countries, too, to varying degree, general knowledge that grows constantly, that uh, familiarizes the people living there more and more to what's in the natural environment, what's interesting, what's important on a broader scale, and what gives they and their families pleasure and the depth of understanding that is a uh, long-term improvement of the quality of life. Mm. I think all that to put together is what we need to just generally seek and develop to a maximum. So the more we learn about the environment around us, the wonder around us, the more likely we'll be to want to keep it intact. Yeah. And what I'd like to see is the full accounting of the natural environment and the species in it. That has within it the potential of altering in a positive way the quality of life of everyone to know what is out there in nature and not just you know how many bird species there are uh, or whether or not there are bobcats living there but an understanding and a study made intensive of everything the invertebrates the smallest creatures the plants even down to the microorganism just should be part of our educational system to engage. That's a great place to leave it on this kind of hopeful note about the need to learn more about the environment. And I I certainly enjoy spending time in the parks by me as well. But I just wanted to say thank you so much for talking with us. It's been such a pleasure. It's been an opportunity as well as a pleasure. Thank you. (laughs) 
Bucks Conversations is produced by Eric Janikas. Our editor is Amy Drostovska. Paul Robert Mouncey mixed and mastered this piece. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. Thanks to Victoria Dominguez, the Vox Audio Fellow, for her help on this episode. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement, we want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we could improve. And if you've got ideas for future guests, guest hosts, or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends, rate and review, and come back next week for a brand new episode. 